Three-quarters of all volcanic activity on Earth happens on the sea floor. Understanding deep-sea volcanoes has ramifications for everything from climate science to the evolution of life on Earth. Since their discovery in the late 1970s, hydrothermal vents and the strangely beautiful life they support have captivated scientists and the public alike. More recently, scientists have been surprised to find actual explosive volcanic eruptions deeper than previously thought possible. Dr. Julie Huber is an assistant scientist at MBL in Woods Hole. She joins me to talk about what we do and don't know about deep sea volcanoes and how that influences our understanding of life on Earth. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Heather. If you have questions or comments for Julie, please chime in. 866-999-4626 is the number to call. Or you can email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at livinglabradio. Now, Julie... Deep sea volcanoes, there's this huge diversity. It's not like on on land where we think, okay, there's a mountain that kind of blows its top once in a while. Vol- volcanism under the ocean takes a huge variety of forms. Tell, tell us a little bit about the different ways that volcanoes appear on the deep sea. Sure. I think you have to remember that um, there actually is a lot of different volcanism on land as well. And it, it, it all depends on the geology. And under under the ocean, volcanoes form where tectonic plates are interacting. So plates might be pulling apart, and you get mid-ocean ridges, and you can have eruptions along mid-ocean ridges. Plates might be knocking together or sliding underneath one another in a process called subduction. And that's what forms some of these explosive volcanoes that we've seen more recently. So a good example is a lot of the volcanoes um, along the Washington, Oregon California coast, those are formed from a subduction zone. It's just an ocean plate sliding underneath a continental plate. And then we have a chain of volcanoes. So we have a lot of the same processes going on underwater. We've just had a lot less opportunities to study them. Because it's so hard to get to them under the water. Sure. You you know, you can't see anything unless you're all the way on the bottom. They're hard to detect. Um, it's sort of my colleague talks about if you drop your keys in the Grand Canyon and then you try to look for your keys with a flashlight. You know, it's the same sort of thing. It's We're looking for relatively small features in a very, very large ocean. Now, why is it that we didn't think until recently that it was possible to have explosive volcanoes in the deep ocean? Well, one of the main reasons is simply because of all the pressure of having that much water above a volcano. Um, And so you have to have an awful lot of gas basically coming out of a system to be able to counteract all the pressure of that seawater sitting on top of it. Um, And I'm not sure it's that we didn't necessarily think it was happening. We just hadn't had the opportunity to see it firsthand. Um, And so these expeditions were mounted with very specific goals in mind to find that type of activity. So when you say these expeditions, you were actually out on a handful of cruises. I guess there was a 2004 cruise, and then you were on cruises in 2006 and 2009 that actually captured video um, the first video of, and I guess the only video still, of these deep sea eruptions. What was it like to actually watch that video? Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Um, it, it's very humbling, I think, is, is, is my core reaction. To, you know, you're sitting up on the surface in an air-conditioned ship, and all of these were in warm places in the Western and South Pacific. And you're watching sort of fundamental earth processes happening before your eyes that you never even knew existed, really. And so, you know, exploding magma and this red glowing lava and, and things that, um, you know, you have seen on we I've seen on land, like in Hawaii, for example. But to actually see it with a group of people who care about it, it was it's pretty exciting. Well, and I imagine, you know, it's not exactly like seeing it on land in Hawaii because the backdrop is this completely black 
deep ocean. Sure. And and we've both times we were very lucky in finding uh, these eruptions. Uh, the first time in 2004 and 2006, uh, we were out there with our Japanese colleagues and we had some indications that something might be going on, um, but we had no idea of how active it would be. In 2009, it was we had a little more preparation. We had seen really strong volcanic signals up in the water column, um, but we still didn't think we'd see the type. I mean, it literally looked like fireworks going off on, on the seafloor. It was really, really amazing. And because of all that dampening effect of seawater, using these remotely operated vehicles, you can get really, really close to this explosion. If this was happening on land, you know, you would have been cleared out for 100 miles radius. Um, but underwater, your vehicle you know, which is your eyes on the seafloor, can get very close um, because the seawater is dampening the effects of the explosion. So talk about that. So you got this video using the underwater vehicle, Jason, which is an unmanned vehicle. But you guys were watching in, in real time, right? It's tethered to the ship. And- sure. So in 2009, we're using the ROV Jason 2, which is operated out of Woods Hole here. And it is uh, tethered to a ship. And that's how we get power and communication and we have pilots up on the ship who are controlling the vehicle. And we are basically seeing nine or ten flat screen images coming back from the seafloor in real time. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. And so, you know, we descended in 2009 and sort of looked around for about six minutes, literally. And then we turned around and there was this explosion. And uh, I've never seen geophysicists so happy. <laughs> Sort of a, the the you know is a holy grail of of their science. Wow! And and Jason or Jason two was able to get within something like five feet. I mean, it's almost like being in the middle of the explosion. Yeah, Jason was. You know, I have to give a lot of credit to the pilots and the team. They they spent some time sort of surveying the area to make sure they always knew what was behind them or above them or around them, and then you know they just went in. And we only had one situation where we really had to get out of there um, because just a larger explosion started coming and it actually produced a lot of small pieces of rock, which fell onto the vehicle, made us 70 pounds heavier than we should have been, which means it makes it very difficult to get back up to the surface. So we simply backed away and spent about an hour just picking rocks off of Jason using the two manipulators that it has uh, until we were able to clear out and do our science again. Did you bring any of those rocks back up with you, though? Yeah, we brought lots of rocks back. Um, we've been, we being the royal we of this group of about 20 people working on this expedition, have been dating those rocks, studying their composition, trying to understand, you know, the underlying process that's forming this volcanism. Joel's giving us a call from Brewster. What's on your mind, Joel? Hi. I'm wondering what part of this earth you consider stationary against which to measure movement. Or when you say one uh, plate is moving relative to the other, it's only in that particular frame of reference. In other words, how do we know is a is a continental plate floating moving above so, that deep sea one, or is it moving under the continent? So, so I mean, is, is there anything that's really sitting still, or is everything basically just floating around? Is that I think that's what Joel's getting at. Thanks for your call, Joel. Yeah, continental continental crust is a very different composition than oceanic crust, and so they have different densities. And so, um, oceanic plates are the ones that are moving around, colliding, having all this action happening. Um, but when I talk about it, you know, it's really, really slow. We're talking about millimeters per year. Um, so 
it's it's not like, you know, you could sit there and watch it unless you're watching an underwater volcano, right? That is the expression of all this movement going on. You know, the Himalayas are a good example. They were formed by two continental plates that did collide, and that's how they were formed. So there is a, there's a lot of motion, and it's constantly being recycled, but it's very, very slow. I think one of the things that I love most about science and that constantly humbles me about science is realizing just how little we know sometimes about the most fundamental things. I mean, the fact that the theory of plate tectonics really only came up in the late 60s. Um, as, as I said earlier, you know, hydrothermal vents weren't discovered until the late 70s, and we're still just figuring out how volcanoes actually work under the ocean, when that's really a, a very fundamental part of how our planet is is formed and put sure, together. Sure, how our planet is recycling water and carbon and sulfur and all these things. And what I think is, you know, it's a great reminder when hydrothermal systems were discovered in 1977, you know, there was no life predicted to be found at hydrothermal systems. There was not a single biologist on that ship. There was a clearly just geologist and chemist, and they discovered all this amazing life, and it was not predicted. There was no hypothesis. You know, so it was a, a basic exploration. And I think a lot of just understanding how our planet works, you know, is just sort of guessing that there might be something going on and going out there and looking. So we now know that, that hydrothermal vents do support a huge, well, not huge, but compared to other places, but really compared to what we thought they might support a huge array of life. And these are some of the weirdest and most beautiful creatures. There are eyeless shrimp and these uh, tube worms that are down there. But what you study is actually the microbial life. And, and there, there's even more diversity, right? Right. So the microbes are forming the base of the food chain at these hydrothermal systems. So up here on surface Earth, we have plants that form the base of our photosynthetic food chain. Um, so plants harvest uh, fixed CO2 using light, and that creates carbon that cows eat, and then we eat the cows, and that's sort of how it goes. Um, but underwater at these volcanoes, you have microbes that are harvesting the chemical energy that's being emitted from the volcanoes, so hydrogen sulfide, methane. And it's those microbes that are allowing these higher life forms like tube worms um, and shrimp, crabs, limpets, a bunch of different animals uh, to survive. And it's called chemosynthesis. And nobody had hypothesized that chemosynthesis should exist until we actually found it and figured out what was going on. And I think that's pretty amazing. So a few years ago, though, looking for these explosive volcanoes, obviously uh, the wisdom of learning from that lack of, of thinking about biology had changed things. You were on board these missions and right. you were looking for life, right? Yeah, I was out there sailing as a microbiologist. We also had a couple people sailing um, animal biologists, large animal biologists. When I say large, you know, just metazoan life. Um, and our expeditions had a full complement, you know, people like me down to geologists, chemists, physical oceanographers trying to study the system as a whole. Now, I, you said that finding these volcanoes was a geophysicist Holy Grail, but but what about for you? Yeah, it, you know, I'm always interested in studying new hydrothermal systems. I'm interested in how different volcanoes in different parts of different oceans are connected, if at all, from a microbial perspective. And I'm also interested in life sort of at the extremes. And these volcanoes, especially these erupting ones, you know, the pH is extremely low. It's like battery acid low. It's, I think we measured as low as 1.8 or something like that, extremely low. And that puts very specific challenges on all sorts of life, in, in particular microbial life. Metazoan life can't live at that type of pH. Um, and also the very, very hot temperatures, you know, hot magma is something like 1,200 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's really, really hot. 
And so those are presenting really special challenges to life. And I'm interested in sort of exploring the, the, the fringes of where life can exist. So then are you actually looking, are these, these uh, bacteria, these microbes actually living in the water and you're just grabbing water samples to look for them? Where are they actually living? So they're basically coating the rock surfaces, uh, and you can see some really beautiful sort of filamentous long bacterial mats covering a lot of the rocks where these vent fluids are coming out. And again, those microbes are harvesting the hydrogen sulfide, for example, sometimes hydrogen that's coming out of the vent fluids. And we're actually also just capturing the vent fluids and looking at the microbes in them to see what microbes might be living beneath the rock surface. So then talk about that a little bit more. I mean, how do microbes live underneath the rock's surface? And, and you actually study even deeper into the, the crust, way down into it, and say that that could be one of the largest ecosystems on Earth. How, do, how could they possibly be living under the rock? Well, it's sort of a hard concept to convey because no one ever hangs out on the ocean floor. But the, the ocean floor is made up of this really porous rock called basalt. And it has a lot of space in it, and it has a lot of water moving through it. Um, it's actually the largest aquifer on our planet. So we think about aquifers on land. We might get our drinking water from an aquifer, depending on where you live. Uh, but under the ocean, we have these really porous rocks, and you have all this water moving through that rock. And it's, that's basically all you need for microbial life. You need space, and you need water, and you need some nutrients. And there are a lot of nutrients in deep sea water, a lot of nutrients in... Um, hydrothermal vent fluids, and actually they can also leach nutrients from the rocks. And so myself and, and a, a growing group of, of scientists are really interested in, in understanding what type of life da is down there, how deep it can go, um, what are the limits to the life, and does it matter in terms of how we're calculating a lot of these larger ocean budgets. So a good example is carbon, right? A lot of carbon sinks to the deep sea, and we think about it just sort of getting buried and trapped away into the rock. Um, and the sediments. But if there are microbes consuming it, are they releasing byproducts back? Are they trapping it in different ways? Things like that. So does that then, this evolving understanding of how carbon is moving around on the seafloor, does that uh, affect like our understanding of, of uh, climate science and climate change for the rest of the planet? I would say we're so far from that. I can't even wave my hands about it. <laughs> but we don't have a really good budget for the deep sea, I would argue, um, in terms of some basic elements and what's happening during the process of water moving through the crust, whether, whether it gets altered, what um, elements might get taken up or released. And so adding in the biological component is relatively new. And we've been studying hydrothermal systems for a while from a microbial perspective. And that more recently, there's been an emphasis on understanding carbon. Uh, but even places in the ocean where we don't have any volcanic activity, we're interested in just what sort of microbes are hanging out in the crust. How many are there? Who are they? What are they eating? Things like that. I'm talking with Dr. Julie Huber of the MBL about deep sea volcanoes and their importance for life on Earth. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 866-999-4626, or you can email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. You can also tweet us at livinglabradio. Now, how important is uh, the deep sea to our understanding of evolution um, and, and the origins of life on Earth, because these volcanoes are, are a lot like what we think a lot more of the planet might have been like billions of years ago. Sure. I think um, 
There's a couple different theories, and one reason people think that life might have originated and evolved、um, at hydrothermal systems is because they were relatively protected in Earth's early history. So the first billion years or so of our planet's life were a pretty nasty time to live on the surface. We were being bombarded with a lot of stuff from space. It was very hot,、uh, an unpleasant surface、uh, place to live. And so some scientists believe that hydrothermal systems were sort of an oasis、um, beneath the ocean, beneath the surface. And because of all this chemical energy interacting with rocks,、um, you could build some of the precursor molecules for life. So there's actually been a number of scientists in the last decade, in particular, that are going out and trying to measure and see if those compounds are naturally there, because they can be building blocks to things like. RNA, for example, which we all have in our cells, all life has.、Um, an additional thought is that a lot of these microbes, you know, they don't need oxygen, they don't need light, they don't need a lot of the things that weren't around on our planet for the first, you know, two and a half billion years. They're using things like hydrogen, CO2, methane,、um, and so they have a lot of the chemistry that is might match what you could imagine an early Earth being like. They also have some of the chemistry that might match what we might see on. Other planets. So a lot of what you do is is、uh, under the umbrella of NASA's astrobiology program. What's the relationship between the deep ocean and and space and and life in those two places? Sure. I mean, NASA is really interested in you know where we came from and where we're going,、um, and so they're interested in understanding the origin and evolution of life both on Earth and and beyond. And so we've gotten a lot of support from them、uh, to just kind of understand this extreme life on our own planet. And they're also interested in the technology we use to explore underwater volcanoes. So the rover that's up on Mars right now, for example, which is searching—it's not searching for life; it's searching searching for chemical signatures of life, organic compounds, things like that. You know, they they talk to that vehicle via radio. Right, so they send a command up, and a few minutes later, it happens. You know, we can't really use radio in the deep sea, we, so we have to use these cables, or we use acoustic modems, or fiber optics, other ways of talking to our vehicles. And those are really good lessons for NASA to have in terms of how they should run their operations. And so they're interested not only in the fundamental science of you know how did we get here, where are we going, but also how do we study life in these challenging environments. Well, and, and in terms of how you study it, I mean, once you bring back the the water or the rock or or whatever it is that you're you're looking for life on, how do you actually determine what's there? Are you just looking under the microscope, counting cells? Or yeah, we use a lot of different tools.、Um, everything from looking under the microscope and counting cells, which is kind of the most basic thing we do, but it's really important to confirm there even are cells, especially at some of these more extreme conditions. To really sophisticated molecular biological techniques, where we're looking at the DNA of these organisms, or looking at the RNA, and that understands us, you know, who these microbes are, what functions they're capable of,、uh, what genes might be expressed,、uh, things like that. And then we, you know, are always pairing up with our chemistry colleagues to try to match what we're finding with what they're finding, and see our well, you know, at these vents where the pH is below three, we always. Find you know this subset of organisms, for example.、Um, so we're using a lot of different techniques and trying to put together a, a story, and trying to figure out. I mean, how how these systems essentially it's like a whole ecosystem of、right. of just microbes, right? Without even any of the the other life there, right? And actually, at these two exploding volcanoes,、um, the dominant life form is the shrimp, and we've only seen it a couple times at 
exploding volcanoes, which is kind of strange um, to think about, you know, how is it finding the exploding volcanoes? And they're actually grazing on the microbial mats that are on the rocks. And so, again, the microbes are forming the base of the food chain, even though there's really only one form of life that we're seeing at, at many of these explosive volcanoes. Because shrimp are mobile, right? They can run away if things get really bad. You don't really want to be a, a, a sessile organism. You don't really want to be stuck to the rock if some lava is going to come and pave you over. So some of the things we often see at mid-ocean ridges, like tube worms and things like that, we haven't seen at these volcanoes. So how do, I mean, this is still one of the big questions, right, is how do animals find these, whether it's the hydrothermal vent or the volcano? I mean, it's not like the seafloor is paved with these things. There's, there's a few here and there. And do we have any handle on that? Well, scientists at, at Hui have are studying that and, and working on it. Uh, there are some ideas with these shrimp in particular that these volcanoes are actually, these exploding ones are really loud. So we've put a couple of hydrophones down, which is basically a microphone on the seafloor. Um, and we've left it there while we've been observing the volcano. And then we can match the hydrophone in our video. And it's really loud. And so one hypothesis is, could these shrimp potentially be attracted to that sound, um, which would be a very interesting adaptation. Um, in, other, in other cases, we think it's just raw luck. So these they, they put out hundreds and millions of larvae up into the water column with the hope that, you know, 0.001% will just happen to settle back onto an underwater volcano. Um, so they're just playing the odds is one another hypothesis. And, and like I said, folks at Huey have been studying that a good bit, trying to understand that. We should say that uh, later today you'll be able to see a video of an exploding undersea volcano and and hear some of that sound on our website. You can go to capeandislands.org and click on uh, Living Lab. It's also going to be on our Facebook page so that you can experience some of this for yourself. And we'll have also links to some of the, the pages, uh, the NOAA websites that have multiple videos. I mean, it is. It's really amazing to watch, as you said. And and one of the things that's most beautiful, you, you said it looks kind of like fireworks, but then there's this thing I've heard it described as like a waterfall or a curtain of carbon dioxide bubbles that actually is, I guess the carbon dioxide is just kind of the gas is coming out of gaseous form and forming these bubbles that just... Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of gases in magma. There's carbon dioxide, there's sulfur dioxide, there's water. And uh, when they, they come out, depending on the pressure and how much is coming out, you get bubble formation on the seafloor. It's really counterintuitive sort of to see that happening. Um, and it, it can be really... Uh, caustic on the vehicles, for example. Having liquid CO2, for example, can be a nasty thing to have around plastics. Um, but we've seen some really interesting bubble formation and other gases and being spewed out basically onto the seafloor. It's really cool. Well, and this is one of the only situations in which liquid carbon dioxide occurs naturally, right? Right. And actually, the liquid CO2 that we've seen was at a volcano that actually wasn't erupting. It's been seen a couple times. It, you know, again, it's very careful conditions that create the right place for that to happen. But, you know, just a few meters from where that liquid CO2 was coming out, we saw a bunch of mussels living on the seafloor. So life life copes and they try to take advantage of everything they can um, to get the, the good energy that's coming out with those hydrothermal fluids. I think this science is just inherently, it's got that kind of cool factor that, that everybody wants you hear about. It's like, oh, hydrothermal vents are so neat. And it's really... But obviously not everybody spends their life studying them. How did you go from just finding them cool to actually spending your life, your career, studying hydrothermal vents and, and volcanoes? Yeah, it was it was a little bit of luck and a little bit of calculation. You know, I thought I was going to study dolphins and coral reefs and things like that. And I went to college and 
Um, and while I was in college, scientists published a paper saying they had found evidence for life in a Martian meteorite. It was a very high profile paper. You know, Bill Clinton stood on the White House steps and talked about it. And it's since been pretty much debunked, the paper, but it really captured my imagination, this idea of microbial life being the only thing out there, you know, and then studying it on our own planet. And so I, I hooked up with a biogeochemist who was interested in microbes and it sort of took off from there. And when I was thinking about what is going to motivate me through a PhD, which can be a long slog, as you know, um, the idea of being able to go to sea and witness these really cool things happening on the seafloor and do it as a team was really appealing. I like working with teams. I, I don't work well in isolation. It's just not my personality at all. And so to be able, um, not only in my lab at home, but also at sea, to work with a lot of different scientists and, and learn about a lot of different things that I, you know, I'm not trained in. I'm not trained in volcanism or any of these things. Uh, it, it's been, it was, it was the right path for me. Obviously something that still keeps you excited. Yeah every day and, and going out to sea. I mean, but that's also got to be, it's got to take its toll all that time at sea. Yeah. And I've, I've cut back on my sea time in a big way since having kids. And I also have a lab now and I have a lot of young, enthusiastic people in my lab who want the same opportunities that I was given um, as a, when I was um, in graduate school and as a postdoc. And so uh, just sort of creating the right balance to make that happen. So what's, what's coming up for you? What uh, big cruises or, or hypotheses are you trying to test? Well, we have a new project that's actually supported by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation um, to look at this idea of who is creating carbon at deep sea hydrothermal vents. So it's very much focused on what organisms are fixing carbon dioxide and then who's eating them. Um, so a really unexplored area of these systems is understanding viruses, for example. So um, we know there are viruses in the ocean. We know there are viruses in hydrothermal vents, but we don't really know anything about them. You know, they could be killing and releasing a lot of carbon. So when they lyse a cell, you know, all that biomass just goes back into the water. And we don't really know anything sort of about how that happens. And so that's a new big project we have going on. And then we're going to go back to some of the vents we discovered in the Mid-Cayman Rise uh, earlier this year um, and look for more. Uh, and this is, you know, we found the world's deepest hydrothermal systems at about 5,000 meters. Lots of interesting things happen with both biology and chemistry when you start getting that deep. Uh, and so we're going to go back, do some more sampling and look for some more sites. Wow. Exciting stuff. Julie Huber is an assistant scientist at the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole, where she studies deep sea volcanism and its importance for microbial life. Julie, thanks so much for being here this morning. Thanks, Heather. As we said, you can find a video of deep sea volcanic eruptions on our website and a link to a whole bunch of videos of deep sea volcanic eruptions on our website. Go to capeandislands.org and click on Living Lab. This is Living Lab on the Point. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab on the Point is produced by Heather Goldstone. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridel and Jenny Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. Living Lab on the Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH. Thank you.